Welcome to We Need to Talk About Kevin, a podcast about Kevin Smith. I'm Ted. I'm Rose. And I'm Trevor. And today, returning guest with us, uh, Kurt Schiller, editor of Blood Knife and uh, podcast host of um, Parents Just Don't Understand. Hey, yeah. Uh, thanks for having me back on the show. Um, it's uh, And thanks for uh, getting me to watch this movie. I don't know that I would have ever watched it uh, otherwise. And, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was a cool experience. Have. The movie we watched this week um, is Southland Tales, directed by Richard Kelly, um, who directed Donnie Darko famously. And in a minor role, uh, medium role, uh, Kevin Smith is in it, so that's why we're doing it. <laughs> it's a glorified cameo. We we figured that uh, now that our podcast is back, you know, we're back in action, what do the fans want to hear? They want to hear us talk about a movie that barely involves kevin smith in any way <laughs> barely involves kevin smith and probably nobody remembers uh this movie we're using that tenuous kevin smith connection to branch out into stuff that doesn't <laughs> totally suck and this doesn't totally suck uh I, i'm interested to hear everyone's opinions but i really enjoyed myself i thought it was very fun even if i have problems with it yeah i, I it was like a roller coaster for me but at the end of it i fucking loved this movie mm. yeah same i had the same experience as ted uh i i going into it i knew it was going to be a big mess uh, i i knew of like the movie's reputation but for the first like hour or so i was finding it really tough and really like slow and and dull and not like what i was kind of expecting yeah. and thinking like oh god am i really gonna sit through an hour and a half more of this, but then it really starts to uh, uh, take all sorts of unexpected turns. And by the end of it, I was like, okay, I was wrong. I, I love this movie, actually. <laughs> and it gets so fun. It's like after you get through the beginning slog, it's just like fun to watch for the rest of it. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I had a very similar experience. Um, it's it's funny because I had a lot of misconceptions about this this movie. Apparently, like I knew it existed, but I was confusing it um, with uh, Blue Velvet somehow <laughs> in my head. Um, and and then I, I didn't realize literally until just before we started recording that it was the same director uh, as as Donnie Darko, which makes perfect yeah. sense in retrospect. And I was thinking about Donnie Darko while I was watching it. But yeah, like at the beginning, I kept thinking, I don't really like this movie in the same way that I didn't like donnie darko and then by the end i was like no this fucking rocks this is a good like this is this is a really good movie and i think um i i'm interested like to like tease out some of the differences and similarities between this and and donnie darko because i i i think a lot of the same things that like didn't work for me in donnie darko did work for me in in this and like why that is 
I think I, I liked it more than Donnie Darko. Oh, yeah. This is a much bigger achievement than Donnie Darko and yeah. very different from Donnie Darko. And oh. frankly, I think this is the way to make a second movie. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. If you're, like when, you're, when you're a director who's gotten like a whole bunch of heat off of one movie that was like an unlikely success and you have like a free range to do pretty much whatever you want for probably just one movie before possibly fading into obscurity <laughs> forever. Like, I think he took the exact right approach and went all out and made a, a like a delusionally ambitious <laughs> uh, a beast of a movie that's weird yeah. and sort of like, uh, it feels sort of like naive and heavy handed, like a teenager <laughs> wrote it or something. Yeah. But it builds Definitely. to such a weird, like, just operatic like absurdity that it it does it's like i i don't know what to make of it it's really difficult <laughs> to sum up my thoughts on this and i feel like it's not a movie that i would be eager to like ever sit through again and i'm not even totally sure i would recommend anybody else watch <laughs> it but i'm very grateful that it exists because there's just uh there's just nothing like this I recommend that people I, I'm watch in complete ag agreement with you. Um, so I, I would compare it to like if you've ever been in an airplane and your ears aren't popping and like it kind of starts to hurt and it gets worse and worse. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, like your ears pop and you're like, wow, like I feel fine. Being in an airplane is cool. Yeah. Um, it was it was kind of like that for me, whereas like like it had to get worse before it gets better. But also, Trev, I, th I think you're exactly correct about this is the way to go when they give you like a little bit of rope to actually do something. And and as another example of the same thing, I would say, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, David Tui going from Pitch Black to Chronicles of Riddick is, is another example of this, where it's like, oh, they're going to let me make whatever movie I want. I'll try and make Dune, but with Vin Diesel. <laughs> Yeah, the opposite approach would be if you're say Kevin Smith and you have you have all this heat for making clerks, so make you go rats. and make a shittier, lamer, uh, uh, more mainstream version of Clerks that sucks. So I want to give um, the most basic approximation of this plot that I, I can muster, the basic concept of the film, because okay. it's a lot. So yeah. for viewers at home, Southland Tales basically is about in like 2005 or 2006 i think um 2008 no that, that's later though it's set in 2008 oh you're going um, oh you're going back yeah. to the okay so uh <laughs> there are two nuclear bombs dropped on texas i believe yes and mm -hmm. uh it triggers world war three which is basically like an escalation of the iraq war and it, this all happens within like the span of, of two years. So it's still under the Bush administration, which was like a, a pretty obvious, I think, like shifting of the timeline to make that happen. Um, and yeah, it's this future dystopia world. And the plot follows a bunch of different what seems to be strangers at first that all kind of come together into this one giant operatic kind of end of the world dystopia story. And it's wacky and silly and over the top, but then also like uh, insightful sometimes and thrilling sometimes and uh, very dull sometimes. Yeah. It's all over the place. 
and the cast is insane. Like oh, the yeah, cast is incredible ridiculous. across the board. The Rock, Sarah Geller, Sean William Scott, Justin Timberlake, Mandy Moore, oh, Amy Poehler. The most ridiculous one here um, was uh, oh my god, what's what's his name on the wire? I think it's Avon Barksdale, uh, Wood Harris, and Amy Poehler. Uh, Will Sasson. Uh, they uh, Cherry O'Terry, Christopher Lambert. There's like 50 characters in this movie. <laughs> yeah, the the cast of this movie is indistinguishable from just yelling out the names of actors that you remember off the top of your head. And and maybe my favorite casting in it, uh, Justin Timberlake is in this. Oh, oh Justin yeah. Timberlake oh, God, is yeah. so good. It's he very rocks. interesting the way this movie is cast because almost every uh, actor in the movie is someone who was either uh, kind of past their prime or like in a lull in their career. Oh. There are a lot of uh, like late 90s teen stars who were yeah. kind of like on the way out. Uh, Mandy Moore, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Justin Timberlake, Sean, Sean William Scott. Scott yeah. all, all these people's like had at this point sort of looked like a flash in the pan a little bit even though some of them might have had a later resurgence. The Rock, I think, was in a very weird stage. Is He yeah. was still kind of trying to establish himself as a movie actor. He wasn't really taken seriously. Yeah, I think this is like one of his first movie roles where he goes by uh, like Dwayne, Dwayne, John Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne Johnson yeah. instead of The Rock, which is interesting. Could be, yeah. It's, yeah. it's really amazing what a... It, in a lot of ways, this feels like a big cultural touchstone watching it now, but yeah. it was like a sort of ignored or panned and then mostly forgotten movie. But like, it definitely seems like a big step in like uh, Dwayne Johnson's transition as like a leading man. Yeah. And like, in he's Justin great. In it. Justin Timberlake had probably never done something with this kind of gravity before this no, movie. And so. now we've seen him do some other serious stuff. If he did a role like this now, he would be lauded for taking on like a weird role. Yeah. Like he's, he's like, he's a movie star now mm -hmm. and he's playing like a weird dirt ball um type character in this yeah that, that like he's the narrator he, he would be like getting anything. like character yeah and personally my favorite scene in like the whole movie is when he does his lip sync to that um i think killers song yeah uh, yeah the killers i i love that, that I, it was so unexpected and so much fun i think that's when the movie started working for me i didn't realize that was justin timberlake until that scene <laughs> I, I, cause like the, the scar he has on his face yeah, and the goatee and he just looked, I don't know, his face looked different. I was like, I don't know. I recognize this guy, but I don't know who it is. That was the second time in the movie where I felt like there was like a huge, uh, like shift, like tonally or aesthetically, because really for the first like 50 minutes, I was surprised that, uh, like it wasn't as visually engrossing as I was expected. It seemed yeah. to be like staged and filmed in a very plain way. Uh -huh. And it almost made me like worry, like, wait, I thought this was going to be this big ostentatious thing. And it looks like he's just kind of doing this, trying to do some kind of like Robert Altman ensemble Magnolia kind of thing mm -hmm. and not really pulling it off and not really having a vision for it. In the first big turn, we didn't mention John Lovitz, who's also incredible. I love him in when this movie. John Fantastic. Lovitz shows up as this psycho murderer cop. Uh, these are big spoilers, but they won't make yeah. any sense if you haven't seen the movie because the plot's <laughs> incomprehensible. 
Oh, and, and by the way, this movie hates cops, which is just oh, yeah. fantastic yeah, to see. And he, he shows up as this like just straight up evil, enigmatic uh, cop. And in in the context of like a, a plot or subplot that had been mostly like kind of played for laughs and silly and weird. Mm-hmm. And he shows up and just murders these two people without hesitation. And like... I just got chills and that was such a shift. And then shortly thereafter you get that Justin Timberlake musical scene. It's, it's almost like the, the, the movie was like tricking me a little bit, like (laughs) trying to confuse the audience. Like you're not quite sure what kind of movie you're watching for like an hour (laughs) or so. And then suddenly it's, and then suddenly it starts like really getting into the the we- it, like it was weird at the beginning. You can tell it's like a weird offbeat story, but it wasn't really it. It really starts like embracing the weirdness and going to dark places that are uncomfortable because you go from like a, a a weird silly moment to something very serious. It's and it's very jarring. And then it just keeps taking more and more weird turns like that. So just the for for begin- like a bird's eye view of the plot of this movie, it's very oh, similar yeah. to uh, Akira, the anime, um, where uh, I, just I hang guess. on, give me a second. Um, <laughs> where there's a big war, shatters a familiar country, and then it ends uh, with a big cosmic occurrence that sort of is ambiguous, but not really. And then all the way in the middle of there, there's a bunch of other shit. But that's basically what it builds from and to <laughs> is big world war that's fair cosmic realignment but in the middle it's a bunch of other things well it's it's just setting up uh so much i was actually thinking when we were watching or when i was watching the film that if this was made now it would absolutely be a 10 episode hbo miniseries or or like show and it would suck that's the thing too is that when i was watching it i was like okay there's a bit of a trade-off here because basically in about two and a half hours you see as much plot as you would in like a giant hbo sci-fi show but it's all crammed together so instead of a ton of filler where you're like sitting through hours and hours because someone online said like no this is like the greatest show ever you start off and the narrators immediately like okay so two nukes went off in the united states and then this happened and then this happened and then it's introducing so many characters so many plot lines there's three chapters to the story that justin timberlake just sort of breezes through and then we go right (laughs) to chapter four yeah the first and apparently (laughs) they made they made a whole graphic novel trilogy as like a prequel that goes more into the events like the stuff with the iraq war Uh and and the nuclear bomb and all that is all in these graphic novels because it couldn't fit in the movie uh but 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 basically you just you jump right through all of this uh quick exposition to how we got here in this alternate world version of 2008 and then we're right in chapter four (laughs) of this weird story and you don't even know what's going on and you continue to not really know what's going on and like i kind of felt like um if there was something that didn't work 
um, it, it was specifically how much narration there was in the beginning. Yeah. Like, I think that the open, like, explaining the events that led up to 2008 was fine, but but I, I was definitely getting fatigued from, like, every time a new character came on screen, I felt like Justin Timberlake was coming back and being like, this is such and such. He does yeah. such and such. And, and it started, it actually kind of reminded me of um, the film Elizabethtown, which I believe also has Justin Timberlake. Wait, no, that's Orlando Bloom. Um, yeah. but but he's doing a very similar kind of like narration that you're like could you just like shut up like this isn't that that complicated this is that complicated but i kind of think that with the way that the movie was like it really doesn't matter if you miss like who yeah. someone is because it doesn't actually help you understand it any better so i, I kind of feel like they could have just like dumped some of that narration and just let people you know be weird you know by the end of the movie i sort of came to the conclusion that even though there's lots of stuff uh, in like the first part of the movie that I would think maybe like you could change that or trim that or do that differently. Like by the end, I kind of thought, no, like it had to be this much of a big, weird, clunky mess in order to get to this point, yeah. like narratively and aesthetically and all of the stuff that was weird or off putting or didn't work for me in the beginning it wouldn't be the same movie if you took that stuff away. Oh. So like, I'm glad that we got this just weirdly unadulterated <laughs> version of, of this guy's vision, which might not be a perfect vision, but it's uh, an impressive one. And, and I think that like, at this point, I, I I finished it maybe, what time is it now? Probably like four, five hours ago. And it's the only thing I've been thinking about since then. <laughs> and I have a very like yeah. shaky tower constructed where I think I, I think I get what happened. Like, there's not a lot that I remember anyway that, like, I'm like, what the fuck was that about? Which is, like, kind of my favorite kind of, uh, like, movie or TV show or whatever. Because that's the fun part is, like, I don't know. It gives you, like, uh, something fun to do after you watched it is just think about the dumb movie. And I think it's important to recognize, too, that um, the confusion is also part of... uh, It's part of the style of the film. It's very intentionally confusing you because... I mean, two of the main perspective characters that we follow um, are people that are completely like, actually, most of them are completely delusional in some way, whether it's actual amnesia, um, you know, personalities uh, splitting or um, uh, even and this is the larger, of course, metaphor of the film. You expand it outwards and it's the media culture that they're surrounded by and, yeah. you know, the reality star that they know. And everyone is kind of living in their own um, as it is with The Rock, with his screenplay. Everyone is living in their own personal story in this like post uh, post or I guess during Bush post nuclear war era, which was very relatable to me living in uh, the Trump era now. <laughs> yeah. So I don't think I there's any other movie, certainly not any other movie that came out right in the prime of that era that uh, that really does as much to process the full extent of the massive mm. like schizophrenic like cultural uh, uh uh like psychic malaise of of 911 in yeah. the Iraq war it yeah. like it 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 really like uh, all of that kind of like just psychic trauma and the way it ripples out into media and into culture and like 
the way it affects people directly, like with um, Justin Justin Timberlake and Sean William Scott's characters who are rock vets, and, but also like the ways it just like ripples into culture and has these these bizarre uh, under-examined effects are are all like explored in this movie in a way that's like I I don't necessarily want to say that it's like prescient but it's like it's he's really tapping into something about uh-huh. like how psychotic that post 9/11 war in Iraq era was uh, uh, in, in th- what the mid two thousands were that everybody was sort of missing. Mm-hmm. Like we were all and, caught and up not- in these weird little pop cultural distractions that in their own way were reflecting, uh, the trauma of nine 11, but like less intentionally. And he's really like it, it Richard Kelly really kind of taps into that and, and creates this little universe and this big story that's just as confusing and weird and hard to grasp as like the the fucked up uh, atmosphere in America and in the world following 9-11. I really want to add one thing to that, which is that that is that's kind of tied into how I read the ending, which is because it kind of it spoiler alerts it ends with the end of the world basically and i kind of read that as being an indictment of america at that period of time like this very very angry um perspective where it shows that america's end goal is this death drive that that's behind every decision that's being made. Like that's what motivates some of the characters is that they don't want to go out with a whimper. They want to go out with a bang and that matters to them. And you can see how the whole culture is kind of riding that same line too. Even if people don't know it, it's a, it's a death obsessed culture. And, and of course I should mention that a lot of this is obviously very influenced by Starship Troopers, which did some similar yeah. things regarding America, like violence culture. But I think this movie does its own spin on it. Well, the, it's it is very cynical, but uh, I think the way it ends with the apocalypse, right? Yeah. But there's yeah. sort of different ways to understand what the apocalypse means. I think, and uh, and uh, and there, we can get into more of that in a minute. But like. Uh, the the way the apocalypse is portrayed isn't as like some horror. It's like a triumphant. It's like a celebration. Mm-hmm. And, That's true. And it almost seems like there's all this like cultural rot and psychic destruction that we're surrounded with. And it feels to me like the ending or like the direction it's all proceeding towards is like finding some sort of transcendence in that like inescapable uh, pain oh. that everybody feels surrounded by. That's a good point. That's sort of why it made me think of Akira is because it has that similar sort of like mass apocalypse end, but it's it's not it's not a sad thing. It's like hopeful almost. Um, yeah, exactly. Tetsuo does also say that pimps don't commit he suicide. He says that. That's the thing. One of the best That lines. is the key The key line in the movie. I lost my it's, fucking mind when they oh said that. Oh, my God. <laughs> that line first appears maybe like 30 minutes before the end of the movie, but then becomes a repeated line like multiple <laughs> and times until the end. it's funny. The first the time end. you hear it, you're like, it's oh, really that's funny. funny. And then it has meaning. It's a very mid-2000s thing, too, that like... Uh, 
you know, Dwayne Johnson, he's playing this movie star. He's like the coolest guy in America. And he's like, I'm a pimp. Like, that's what you <laughs> it's like. I'm a pimp and pimps don't commit suicide. He's playing yeah. himself literally 15 years before he became himself. Like, yeah, he's Baller. probably the biggest Baller. movie star like right now. If I if I had to choose one, he's up there at least. Yeah. And that his character has ties to the Republican Party. I found <laughs> interesting because I don't think that we knew that about Dwayne Johnson yet. Probably at the time, not. but that's something Maybe that we know about him now. It's it's very weird that his character is sort of a, an echo of his future real life self. It really struck me how much smaller he was. In oh my yeah. god! I have to say, yeah. like, I was like, yeah. or, or really, how how big he is now? I was like, oh wow, like he's in really good shape in this. He movie. looks tiny. <laughs> And he's playing against his type, too, because a lot of the film is just him being kind of, like, scared and confused, which was interesting he to see him do. He has that nervous tick. Yeah, yeah, he's got these mannerisms. He's always, like, playing with his fingers, like, uh -huh. scared of everything. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, but he easily transforms into the macho action star guy. Yeah. Especially when it turns out that his action a movie screenplay turns out to be a prophecy of what's actually happening and he takes on the role of the action star in the movie so that's that's something i wanted to specifically call out that was there was one scene that made me think of this um but but in, in general this movie while it is cynical is not mocking of, no. of the characters in it like it's not like something like idiocracy where yeah. it's like oh look how look how stupid these characters are you can laugh at them and and make make fun of them they're pathetic like it's not treated as mock like worthy of mockery that the rock's character is writing a screenplay and is very into it like it seems like it could be at first but that's no it's like as you say it turns out to be a, like a prophecy and he actually does legitimately care about like this as art like he's very invested yeah. in it or for instance um there's a scene where uh Kristen now played by sarah michelle geller is pitching her like business venture her brands um to I, I think like a director or a producer yeah. um and she talks about how she wants she wants like a clothing line and a jewelry line and like like an energy drink brand and maybe this played a little bit differently in 2006 <laughs> but those are all totally reasonable smart things for you know like a mid-tier celebrity yeah. to be pursuing like and it's not it's not like you're, you're not supposed to be like oh these people are like pathetic it's it's just the, the world that they live in is kind of pathetic, but they're all acting totally reasonably within it. I do think towards the beginning, it's deceptive in the way that it does seem to be mocking them, especially uh, Krista now, who's like, so so she's a former porn star, but she's also like sort of like this empowered media personality, but it's portrayed, it seems to be played as a joke. And like also when they're explaining the concept of the screenplay, uh, and obviously it sounds ridiculous on its face. And when when The Rock is like uh, giving the plot for the screenplay, it's really weird. They have him speaking in this very stilted, bad acting way. And he's like his eyes, like he's looking up as though he's like looking at something on the ceiling the whole time. And it makes it <laughs> and it's like. So it's it's obviously playing up how ridiculous this is like this guy it's from what we can tell now this guy's just a movie star who ran away from home and hooked up with a porn star and wrote a terrible screenplay together but of course this all turns out to be deeply important and the characters are all uh 
uh, uh, redeemed. In, from the movie's like perspective, it's literally he's the prophet for like God, for because yeah. they're they're yeah. recounting revelations basically. Um, I, I really loved Krista Now's character. She's probably my favorite in the movie. Um, and do you guys know that song that she sang? I, I I'll play it in the beginning of the podcast open. Um, but do you guys remember the teen horniness is not a crime song? Oh yeah yeah. So I want to read some of the lyrics here because I looked them up and they're amazing. Um, Teen horniness is not a crime. Open your heart and your mind because the numbers don't lie. Observe the nerds who shot at Columbine. I remember hearing oh, yeah, that line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, caught, I, caught, I caught that line. Yeah. <laughs> it's just about like how if you uh, suppress your sexuality, it's bad. It, it, and it's so, such a small part of the movie, but I love how fleshed out her character was and her whole like vibe was so realistic they really it really seems ahead of of the curve on how uh these sort of uh sexualized uh uh media celebs would become like more revered figures like i think probably uh when when this was written probably you know paris hilton had gotten famous off of a sex tape and maybe yeah. kim kardashian was already blowing up from her sex tape and so, like, on its face, Krista Now's character is sort of, like, an exaggerated version of that, where she's, like, she starts out as a porn star, but is breaking into being, like, this, you know, multimedia brand franchise, which is something that's very familiar to us now, but was sort of a novel thing at the time. Uh, I couldn't... But, but yeah, the, fa the fact that she's redeemed uh, and celebrated, ultimately by the movie is reflective of a turn that a culture would take, you know? <laughs> so I, fi I find that uh, kind of interesting. I kind of disagree because, uh, I don't know, I found, like, the, the treatment of sex in general to just be, like, for one thing, real, like, teenage boy shit, but also kind of prudish. Like, it felt, I don't know, it felt pretty judgmental, um, a lot of it. And I didn't really like how certain characters were treated just because it felt, um, it's that, it's that very, very, yeah, Paris Hilton era kind of satire that I've just seen a lot of before and I didn't find it super insightful. And like, I really didn't like, um, how it ended up kind of wrecking that plot line with that woman in the office, uh, who has like an obsession with um Dwayne the Rock Johnson yeah I, yeah she's the only I character that like made me how sad how up. she turned out yeah I didn't like I didn't like how she was characterized and I didn't like how it ended up either um but I do I did like Sarah Michelle Gellar's character specifically um a good bit yeah I I don't think in terms of of sex the movie is very insightful at least not intentionally I think that it, in terms of being reflective of of future trends, I think that may have been something that's sort of accidental that that appears that way to me watching it in retrospect that oh. wasn't necessarily something that came from Richard Kelly's own insight. Because, yeah, there is a very uh, adolescent nature to the way that all those these topics are handled. But I do also want to point out, though, that um, even though I, I had problems with, like, I had problems with those female characters and how they were written. Uh, on the other hand, I absolutely loved the neo-Marxist, like, Hell girl yes. hacker group and yeah. all, all the characters within it. 
Uh, they're all really fleshed out. Um, one of them ends up being a rat, and that was awesome. I didn't see it coming, and I thought I she was really good when it happened. And um, the two main ones who are like best friends, maybe lesbians, not sure. I feel like that might have gotten cut out or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, they had great chemistry like they were super fun i really like those characters that was my favorite stuff the rat was a cherry terry right yeah mm-hmm. well it, it's it's interesting you say she turns out to be a rat and well that's true like because she's like conspiring against the other neo-marxists uh be to like basically to do a more real version of their pl- like they were gonna stage this like fake cop killing, yeah. Uh, and then, but then she conspired with an actual cop to make it a real cop killing mm-hmm. to send a deeper. Me- but it was all. Oh, it, it's weird. Yeah. It's weird because as the layers get peeled back, it starts to look like everybody is complicit, and that in a way, whether knowingly or unknowingly, the the revolutionaries and the powers that be are all sort of working together towards <laughs> this conclusion of ending the yeah. world. Yeah. Like it you you see different layers of complicity being revealed over the course and then you start to wonder like is are any of is these are these neo-marxists even a real thing? Like it, it's wow. it's also very interesting that they're called neo-marxists and I think the way the way Marx is used as as a, a figure <laughs> in the movie is very interesting because yeah I mean so their group their like rebel group is called the neo Marxists but they don't uh, they don't really see they, we don't see them engage in any kind of Marxist <laughs> theory or praxis the they op they're more like anarchists if anything yeah that's what uh, I'd there's say. nothing there's nothing really Marxist about them. But it's there's just this fetishization throughout the movie of Marx's image uh, kind of crudely transformed into this sort of street art type icon. And it's accompanied with this quote that I don't even know if it's a real Marx quote that gets repeated throughout the movie, which is destroy capitalism, dethrone God. Yeah. Does anyone know <laughs> if that's something Marx actually said? No, <laughs> because but it sa- seems like an apocryphal quote. But that... Uh... Those two phrases, among others, uh, verbatim were in Tucker Carlson's Agenda in, of the Left. Fox News, yeah. yeah a while I ago. That. I remember it said <laughs> I, I, God, and I was like, that's fucking dope. I remember that. Yeah. Um, I, I think it has uh, some source. Like, it, it's uh, probably an apocryphal quote, but I think it comes from something. Unless Tucker Carlson actually got that from Southland Tales, I'm gonna which I, I doubt. I'm going to believe it. <laughs> the documentary Southland Tales. But it, it's just interesting to me how the cult, and I don't know how intentional this was or how familiar Richard Kelly is with Marxism. I s- suspect not very, but either way, there's something, uh, uh, there's really something to the way uh, Marx's I- image is turned into this crude sort of uh, cultural icon uh, d- divorced from any real meaning other than the act of rebellion. While at the same time, the, his wife, Gen- the, the, the fucking, the eco-fascist whatever guy's uh, Zeppelin is named Jenny von Westfallen, which was Marx's wife's name. And they have a Marx oh. suite on the Zeppelin. So, like, Marx is being turned into this uh, fetish figure by both sides 
of the conflict <laughs> and none of it really has anything to do with with marxism it has more to do with like cultural uh symbolism doesn't wallace shawn's character also say destroy capitalism towards the end he 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 poses he poses yeah. it as a question yeah. to uh, oh, okay. the rock's character when we first see wallace shawn he's uh he, he's like this uh, progressive a green new deal scientist who's going to save the world or whatever but we find out he's at but he finds actually in league with the evil republicans and it's all a big ploy but actually it's all it's all connected like he and the neo-marxists are two sides of one big machine that even the characters in the movie don't seem to fully understand there's so many strange little scenes in this um film that like i i'm sitting here thinking about and realizing that like we're probably never going to get to the part where the two cgi cars fuck oh my um, god yeah or or the part or or the part where you you mentioned like all the marks iconography and there's a part where um i think it's i think it's Kristen now i i believe goes into a bathroom stall and there's like a like a carl marks like it it looks like it's a glory hole or, or something, but it turns out to be like a dead drop for for like putting stuff. In. It says like feed the hole. Yeah, for the like puts... for the illegal website that operates right. outside of their the Patriot <laughs> Act uh, internet because the Patriot Act has been expanded and they have total control over the internet and only the neo Marxists can uh, get around it with their illegal website. Right, or there's there are these these like Philip K. Dick type contraptions that that are kind of like a like a like a mounted sniper scope chair that that they show um uh pilot using a bunch like yeah there, there's basically just like massive oh, yeah. snipers stationed ba- it seems like everywhere in california that are just like there to shoot somebody if they pull a gun on somebody yeah. or something it happens a couple times in the movie they've completely given over into like being in a fascist police state but everybody down on the ground is just acting like it's spring break all the time. Yeah. They're like they're not they're not acknowledging the fact that there are deadly weapons trained on them like at all times by the state operated by these traumatized uh, military veterans. Apparently, it's a very uh, uh, surreal and terrifying uh, situation that nobody living in it seems to be like recognizing or acknowledging. In fact, one of the guys manning the sniper rifles, the narrator, Justin Timberlake's character, is just later like on the ground, still in his uniform or whatever, partying with people just later on. Yeah. Well, because he he seems to he has this sort of omniscient quality. He seems to know that the end of the world is coming and he's embraced it. I think that's more of like an after the fact thing. It's never really clear. But I don't know if he was like aware of what was going on at the time. Was he real, though? Yeah, he's real. You know how Sean William Scott, there was like a sort of recurring theme with his character um, about like friendly fire in yeah. Iraq? Isn't I, maybe I misread what the scene was, but I thought that Justin Timberlake was just uh, Sean William Scott's vision of the guy that he killed in Iraq. So I, I think that like maybe he was, but at the end he says it that could, they were best could, friends. It so could be. Could be friendly fire. But he also could have just been like, 
hurt by him or something and Sean William Scott didn't know? It's it's not clear. Yeah, it seems like he, at least in the literal surface level version of the story, he severely damaged Justin Timberlake's face and he had to get like reconstructive surgery to fix it. Uh, Rose, I I did have the same thought though, Rose, um, that that like he was actually dead. But then it occurred to me that he does actually interact with one other character yeah, yeah. at least, which is um, the guy who found out that he he's been drafted and so he wants to kill himself. Well, he also shoots a woman. Yeah, yeah, he shoots the the stalker lady who's about to oh, that's shoot right. that's uh, right. the rock. But but yeah, but it's all it's obviously all highly abstracted so even though he's literally involved in the story like he function the way he functions for sean william scott is sort of as a ghost of his you know mistakes uh in the war and his regret and his his trauma so it like it i think it, it you could read it either way there's uh, there the, there's no need to like try to uh, get a firm ground on like okay what was actually happening yeah i have to say though if there's something that does translate like directly to something that's relevant now if you take it literally um the the connection between like um you know tr traumatized people and a traumatized culture coming out of this like you know, decade long war um, and and that feeding directly into a kind of fascist police state that that is very prone to shooting people and killing them. Um, it, it feels very prescient to me, like like if, if I were and, and I mean, I, if if that was an intentional statement around that, it's, it's incredibly prescient. I, I assume it's it's not that fully formed. Um, but I, I mean, looking at it from like a lens of 2020, I mean, that that it like there is a direct pipeline now from, you know, the military and military training into an over militarized police force. And that was that was in the conversation in 2006, but not very much like it was very it was a people were just starting to really pay attention to it, I think. Yeah, it's it's picking up on this uh, social or cultural trend, like maybe consciously, maybe not consciously. Uh, and it and it sort of pr processing these confusing feelings about things we didn't fully understand yet that Richard Kelly probably didn't fully understand. But he um, he took he took those uh, confusing feelings and turned them into this. And looking back at it now, it does create a, a imperfect but very interesting uh, a roadmap uh, for where um, uh, all of all of this uh, energy might go. Oh, and also Kevin Smith is in the movie. Did you know that? <laughs> so I, he plays the like sort of admin of the black market yeah. internet, right? He's also an Iraq who was um, experimented on by Wallace Shawn, and he has no legs. But I guess he's sort of a tech guy and, and has been put to work of uh, running the, uh, yeah, as an admin. He's a mod. Of, yeah. He's 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 a sysadmin. 
Uh, he's almost unrecognizable in like a white wig and a long white beard. I kept waiting for the Kevin Smith cameo, um, and it wasn't until quite late that I was like, oh, this is the Ke- like this is the fourth time I've seen this character. This is the Kevin Smith cameo. <laughs> and his acting is like pretty good. Like, like I thought he was just, you know, like like a decent actor who yeah. you know was doing a role. I didn't realize that it was Kevin Smith at all. So he didn't do any goofy shit. He's put to better use here as an actor than ever in any other movie, certainly in any of his own movies. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's because unlike his movies, this one has a competent director. Yeah, and also, you know, he's, uh, the director's cultivating this very unreal kind of atmosphere, so uh, you don't really need, a guy like Kevin Smith in that weird role, you don't need him to be like a good or convincing actor. You just need the whatever kind of particular energy he's able to bring to the to the scenario. So are there any parts that you guys like especially liked in the movie? Uh, I, of course, I of course, love the just Timberlake uh, lip sync. I'm looking through the notes I took uh, right now. Um, Eli Roth is in this movie briefly and it gets shot on the toilet. I saw. Um, I oh, noticed, something I wanted yeah. to point out was that um, Donnie Darko was very influenced by David Lynch, obviously. But this film is also um, makes yeah. direct references to David Lynch, which I found interesting. Um, there's two scenes that are basically lifted um, stylistically from Mulholland Drive. The first one being the diner scene, um, which is shot in the, in the same way as Mulholland Drive. It's the one with um, The Rock when he's talking about memories and dreams. Oh. Uh, it's the same as the diner scene in Mulholland Drive. And uh, later on, the singer from Mulholland Drive appears and sings the national anthem in uh, in a yeah. Oh, is that yeah, that's in a who scene that, that reflects the film? I didn't realize um, that. Yeah, so a very wow. interesting little connection there. Um, oh, I was very confused by. I don't know if you have any insight into this. I don't know what the deal was with the Robert Frost connections in this film, that the candidate's name was Bobby Frost, which is obviously Robert Frost. And he was saying, you know, the path uh, less chosen, which is the road road not not traveled, which is Robert Frost's poem. Uh, did, Did you know what was up with that? I didn't get the I didn't get why that was being pointed out. I never really nailed that down, no. Yeah, I didn't yeah. even think about the name. I definitely, I, I caught the reference to the poem, but wasn't even thinking about the fact that his name I, was Frost. I thought that was kind of like a like a time travel time loop um, reference, kind of like repurposing, you know, the 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 path not taken into, you know, the fact that there are multiple characters who exist in in multiple forms and and. You know, with both of them, there's kind of a debate about, like, do you eliminate one or, like, which is the real one? Um, that was my only thought. The other thing I thought was, was um, it's Robert Frost is exceptionally overquoted, just like as a poet. Um, and I, I felt like that that poem in particular fit very well with the trend of kind of like corny um like lines that sound like they're but like they're overwritten like there was one there there was one that that i wrote down that's sometimes a dream can become a nightmare on the turn of a dime um (laughs) which it's just like three cliches like smushed together that don't really mean anything um so that that was just what i was taking that from i was like oh here's the thing that people already overstate 
And especially being made in 2006, you know, the there there was a big thing of, you know, the president wasn't exactly the most, uh, the most, um, you know, sharp speaker, <laughs> I think. Yeah, if I'm if I'm remembering right, and there is a lot of information in this movie, so I might not be, but um, I think the first time we hear that road not traveled line, it's it's used very earnestly, like in the narration, and then almost immediately after that, we hear the Republican vice presidential candidate say it in a very like fake sounding way, in like his little stump speech or whatever. So it almost, I might have that in the wrong order, but I picked up on that as like kind of like introducing this cliche in a sincere way, but then immediately like exposing it as a cliche by putting it in the mouth of this smarmy, shitty Republican senator. I was also a fan of the the small amount of new tech that we saw, the little two-year jump in tech, because we got a cool little bendy yeah. gun. There was a little gun that bent around a c- corner. I <laughs> love it. Which makes no sense, <laughs> I but love it's it. very cool. <laughs> I was... I, I, my first thought was like that's very cool, but then I was like, wait, how would that fire if the ba- yeah. if the barrel is bent? Like, where's the bullet coming from it to create the for- <laughs> it curves around the barrel? Yeah. So, um, the this is this is a weird deep lore that comes from reading too many cracked articles about 15 <laughs> years ago. The Nazis actually did develop a gun that had a curved barrel. Whoa. Um, and the, the the issue was that you had to replace it after firing it, like three times so you had to carry around a bunch of barrels this thing bends yeah. 90 degrees on like a hinge it's, a it's not like it's just curved <laughs> yeah you yeah, know? yeah. i had like... a super soaker that, that uh <laughs> yeah that sure that. sure a super soaker <laughs> could do it yeah it, it's 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 very funny that this movie was set just two years in the future of the time which is now 12 years in the past because all all of the lo- locations all of the like fashion choices of the like elite characters had this very weird like creepy dystopian future like look to them and like the idea is that you know the i think that the national psyche has been radically transformed by the they call in the beginning the american hiroshima which i'm thinking more about since ted made the akira connection that like you know this is like sort of processing 9-11 almost through the lens of Japan's trauma, which we've seen processed a lot in, in Japanese films. But um, I'm rambling now. Uh, the point is, it's very weird that all of the fashion and buildings and everything changed so much uh, by 2008. Yeah. yeah. One thing um, th- that I sort of appreciate about this movie is sort of the shift between this and Donnie Darko. I'm a big Donnie Darko apologist. I think it's a good movie. Okay. Um, but like <laughs> it, Donnie Darko was so like sort of solitary and very darkly shot most of the time. And this is like a billion people on screen in almost every scene, super bright, super colorful and everything like that. Um, and it, it made me think of the progression from hereditary to midsummer, just like how different it looked on a purely superficial level that I really liked. It's it's very different conceptually too. Like in every way, it's in the the casting, the acting, like the look of the. It's he's 
very much not trying to do like the next Donnie Darko, yeah. which would be like the temptation for a lot of filmmakers. It seemed like he really wanted to use that uh, that temporary uh, uh, freedom, creative freedom he had to do something wildly different and and really over the top and not at all what you uh, would have expected. My criticism of Donnie Darko was always that it's kind of like a busy box for for like precocious teenagers, um, and they need because that. it yeah 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 and and that's that's not like that strong of a criticism. It's just why I, you know, thought it was okay when I was you know uh, a like a late teenager, and why I I now have like no interest in it. There's so much more to this film. Um, both like visually and in the performances and in like the ideas it's trying to grapple with. The other thing is, um, I, I just don't like Jake Gyllenhaal in Donnie Darko at all. And if like, uh, Dwayne Johnson or Sean William Scott or like any of the other leads in this, I I think are just all both like I, I, their, their performances just worked a lot better for me and they felt like they fit the role better. I I always struggled with to, to me, Jake Gyllenhaal and Donnie Darko looks like he's about 40 for some reason. (laughs) He does look very old. He just, he just doesn't look. And, and I, I looked it up earlier. I, I didn't realize he was only like like twenty in, in the film, so I'm I'm kind of baffled now. I guess he just has has like an old face or something. I don't know. He just looked mature. Um, I, I don't know. I, I I felt like this this movie had so much more going for it. There there was a question earlier about um, if there were any scenes that stood out in particular. The scene where the two Sean Williams Scotts amazing Sean's Will- William Scott Sean's um, cla- class pans uh, and it starts like glowing and then the the ice cream truck starts floating up in the air amazing it's such a weird visual and I really loved that it like it th- that could have seemed so far up its own ass um uh ted mentioned like it seemed like a like a movie that like a teenager would make that's the sort of thing that if a teenager actually made it would be like this is this is a terrible scene and i I, like i found that scene like touching and like it it i loved it it was visually cool i thought it was great so that that scene was when i was like that was when i decided i loved the film that it was it was a good film that that was the i had the same reaction at the same time i said in the chat with rose and ted like okay i think i actually love this movie (laughs) and yeah and it is it is very silly and very heavy-handed but it's like it's just uh it's just the the context of the i mean like if you haven't seen the movie at all and you're just listening to this and taking our word for it this all is all nonsense. Like, you know, <laughs> like you, ca- you just kind of have to watch it. Uh, I know I said I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but I changed my mind. You should watch it. I think yeah, you I should watch that. this movie. Yeah, because because the the way that that's intercut with the like uh, dance sequence with The Rock and Sarah Michelle Gellar and then uh, Mandy Moore joining them. Yeah. And this like. This very like heavy handed visual poetry that's happening in two or three different scenes that we're cutting between done with the music that uh, Moby did the soundtrack to this, by the way, which honestly, I know he's been canceled. I think he's been canceled. Uh, It slapped. Yeah, no, he's he's he sucks as a guy, but the soundtrack was good. That track that track that's playing during that whole thing is very Moby, but it feels very uplifting and it's just like it all just works together 
uh, somehow. It sort of reminded me of the one o tricks point never score of uncut gems. Just these like ethereal sort of pads beneath scenes that like aren't super congruent to them, but it still works. And it's it it evokes so much emotion that is mirrored so well by the characters on screen, especially Sean William Scott. I love him. Uh, he rocks in this movie. Oh, he's he's so good. He's like might be one of my favorite actors. Everything he's in, he's amazing. He's a leading man. A- a- everything that uh, Chris Pratt has ever been given in his stupid career should have been given to Sean <laughs> yes. William Scott. Yes. He would do it a hundred times better. Yes. He's that guy. That guy that Chris Pratt is trying to pretend to be. It comes naturally to him. And, and like his character is sort of similar to how he is in Goon, but he plays it so differently. Like he's a very quiet sort of reserved guy who doesn't seem like too intelligent, but he plays it in such a different way that it's, it's a totally different vibe. Um, and he totally like, for me, that's what, what like really made the movie is just how good he does with his character and like how much like you can just see on his basically blank face, I guess. Also, I think I already mentioned my favorite scene earlier like the one that's gonna stick with me the most i think is when we're introduced to john lovitz's character and he steps in and just completely changes the mood it's so unsettling and 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 haunting like uh that 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 still still sticks with me and john lovitz is so fucking good i didn't think it was john lovitz i just thought it was a guy that looked like john lovitz because i was like that's that's not you wouldn't put John Lovitz in a movie and have him do this, right? They take they take all these comic actors like Will Sasso and Sherry O'Terry, like uh, all these like uh, sketch comedy people, and use their uh, their comic sensibilities in a way to convey something totally different. And he makes John Lovitz menacing. And yeah. but then late, but then later, like he's menacing for that scene. But then when we see him later, we start to see who the character is a little more, and he's kind of just a, a stupid, pathetic asshole cop. Yeah. But it's but in that introduction, he's terrifying. <laughs> uh, does anybody else has, have anything like burning that? They yeah. Do we have about? some la- last thoughts on Southland Tales? No. It's um. It, there, there was a remark that either, I think either Ted or Rose made um, that that this is like it's it's kind of surprising that this film captured the era that it was made so well, like while being made in in the middle of it, um, and yeah, it's it really is like if if you want to feel like how bad it felt to to be in, like. 2006 2005 and like feeling like there was no future and nothing was going to change and the like the assholes have won um things are kind of like slowly collect like it's it's very much um this like a similar sensation to now except except not even like like funny or like interesting in 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 some ways like it's it sounds dark to call now funny or interesting but like 2005 2006 was also just kind of like boring um but also very like oppressive and and dark and it really captures that the just just like the 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 darkness of the the sh- and shallowness of it at the same time it it really is a like a psychically resonant film like i feel like my brain is larger possibly by swelling after having watched it so i would say watch it 
I can't believe I didn't watch this in 2006 when it came out. Because if I, had, I don't think I would have appreciated it. If I had watched this then, I don't know if I would have appreciated it the same way. But it would have like spoken to my soul as like a confused alienated like teenager at the time much more so than donnie darko i think <laughs> like it, it like uh, i fucking hated bush and was so mad about the war the war on terror and everything was so confusing i didn't know what to do with all of that and like and uh, the, seeing this movie would have fucking rocked my brain uh, if i'd watched it then i think we found <laughs> a uh, a kevin quote about this movie or is it yeah. about the director? Well, not 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 about this movie specifically, but I was reading about the director and this quote came up and you know, just to just to bring it back to Kevin a little bit, I guess, uh, cuz we do need to talk about Kevin. <laughs> this is I shouldn't have laughed at that. I read I read this quote uh this is a little bit of a Kevin's receipts, I guess. Um in 2016, yeah, it's a quote Kevin Smith talking about the director, who he's a big fan of. In 2016, filmmaker Kevin Smith said of Kelly, he is insanely creative and is not unlike Christopher Nolan. But Nolan wound up in the Warner Brothers system where he got special handling and he got a lot of money to make huge Oof. art films like Inception. This is already <laughs> just pissing me off so much that he... <laughs> Richard can be one of our greatest filmmakers. He is right now, but just a lot of people don't realize it. He's still a kid, and someone needs to Nolan that kid. That's that's Kevin Smith on uh, Richard Kelly. This also makes up the entirety of the reception section <laughs> of Richard Kelly's Wikipedia page. Apparently that's all anyone's ever had to say about him. Well, and of course it was Kevin Smith comparing him to Christopher Nolan being too fucking thick to see the difference oh, between God. a really ambitious outsider weirdo and like the fucking most boring filmmaker in history. Well, think about it. Kevin had been compared to um, Tarantino and Rod. What's that other guy? I always remember forget his name. Robert Robert Rodriguez. Robert Rodriguez. He'd been compared to Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez his whole career. So of course he has a sort of skewed view on. Uh, the relationships between two different directors. It's so, it's just so, it's, well, there's another thing about this quote that I think is funny. He said, he's still a kid and someone used to know him, that kid. Uh, Richard Kelly is five years younger than Kevin Smith. They were, they were both in their forties when Kevin Smith said this. <laughs> I mean, I don't think he's wrong, though, that the money that Christopher Nolan is able to get for his films would be better deployed giving it to Richard Kelly. Yes. If Southland tells us any indication. Oh, I completely agree with that. But he's like, it's such a funny way to frame that argument in your yeah, mind. It's like it's he, he can't say like, oh, this guy is so incredibly original. There's nothing else like him. It's like he's just like Nolan if the studios would give him money like Nolan, he could be just as good as Nolan, seemingly <laughs> ignorant of the reason why Christopher Nolan is able to secure all those that studio money and Richard Kelly isn't um, because of, you know, Christopher Nolan's extremely boring uh, baseline kind of uh, approach to movies that's very studio friendly and popular. You know, it's it's yeah. just it's so 
not just to be like he got a lot of money to make huge art films like Inception. <laughs> just it's just so funny to call Inception an art film. There's CGI uh, um, art just, in there, you know. You could say CGI is art. Yes, yeah, so, some some uh, craft went into creating it. Not so much on the director's part, but so, some people uh, yeah had to contribute artistically. Here is my uh, my proposition: is uh, give Kelly the next. Batman trilogy. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. <laughs> Just give it to him. We'll see what would happen. I, if he wants, if he was like, I want to make a Batman movie, then I'd be like, Yeah, totally. Cancel the current Batman movie and let him do one <laughs> instead. Who cares? But I don't know if I'd be like. Have any of you checked out the box? Uh, I the trailer not, looked pretty bad, but I didn't know it was by Richard Kelly. And now that I know that, I'm like, hmm, maybe I should check it out. I've seen that movie. I was like, wait, that sounds like a movie I saw when I was 14, 13. Yeah, I saw that movie in theaters twice because when I was 14, what all the kids in town would do is go to the movie theaters and just see whatever movie was out. Uh, and the box came out at a time when there was, weren't a lot of movies out. So I have seen the box. Damn um, it. It sucks. <laughs> I was 14, Damn. but it's not good. Yeah, I wasn't sure about that one. That kind of seems like something that happened after he became a little more limited. I assume yeah, Southland yeah. Tales was a huge flop. Southland Tales had a 17 million budget and made less than $400,000, I think. It's most famous for being booed at Cannes uh, roundly and then and then getting torn so apart funny. by critics afterwards, getting really, really negative reviews when it came out. Um, it's considered like a disaster, basically. Any movie that gets booed at Cannes is like almost guaranteed to be more interesting than <laughs> 99% of the shit that gets widespread critical praise. It's so funny what a bunch of babies those those critics are that go to film festivals and they stand up and boo movies with the director right there. It's a like, very weird thing to do. I don't know if it's a French thing or like, I mean, I know Sundance has famously had a bunch of walkouts too at movies that were great. Like uh, the comedy, the Tim Heidecker movie, people walked out on. And it's like, you're a fucking professional film critic. You're not even gonna like sit through the movie and give it a chance before you react to it. I mean, I if you're at Sundance, I get walking out because there's other shit to see. Like, okay, that's that's fair. So, like, I get walking out, but if you're going to boo, is that Booing ridiculous. is a whole other story. The French are famously rude. They're a bunch of fucking Philistines is what they are. <laughs> I think um, Swiss Army Man also got boos at Cannes. Oh, that movie rocks. <laughs> I love that movie. Yeah, it rules. I don't know of a single movie that's been booed at Cannes that I've seen that wasn't awesome. I honestly don't know of a single movie that's been booed at Cannes that hasn't come up in this conversation. Um, uh, Wild so. at Heart. That's my favorite. There you go. <laughs> well yeah i love this movie um i want to watch it again actually which i rarely do with any movie i'm gonna check out the cans cut eventually because the because it got recut after it got booed at cans it got shortened so um right i don't think an official cut is out i think it might be a fan cut because they released the cans version on like t on like tv or something there was some weird release with it but i know that there is a version online that what? exists of it um but i don't think it's like officially approved i would have to double check that though that's just what i saw in like my brief research into it 
Apparently Janine Garofalo is in that version. No, I saw her. Oh, she was in this? In She didn't have a speaking part, but she was in the crowd scene with huh. uh, with Justin Timberlake at the very end. Mm. She apparently has, has like lines and like right, a plot yeah. in, in the other one. That makes sense because I was thinking like, oh, that's uh, that person whose name I can't remember. That's weird that she's just like an extra in this scene. <laughs> but yeah, no, he, he needs to get that fucking Netflix Tarantino deal, turn it into a little... Uh, four-hour uh, uh, Netflix series, the oh. Snyder Cut style, you know? All those streaming services need to get on that, these forgotten, misunderstood yeah. movies. The extended Netflix cut of Hateful Eight is really great. It's really, It's really amazing. Good. It's, really it's good. so good. Watch that, too. Yeah. When you're done with this three-hour movie, watch that four-hour movie. <laughs> I watched it, like, one episode a week, or one part a week, I guess, one, like, hour. A week? Yeah, well, because I was lives, watching. Who lives like that? I was watching with my dad, and I only I usually only see him on the weekends, but it's good. I couldn't. If that were me, I'd be like, "You're on your own, Dad. I'm gonna finish the movie. I'm wanna, a good son. I want to see the rest. I'm just a good son. My dad can watch it on, on his own time. He doesn't give a shit." Uh, Kurt, thanks so much for coming back, everybody. Our, you're our second uh, returning guest. You're now tied with Valerie for most appearances on the show. Everybody yeah. check out Blood Knife, bloodknife.com. We didn't explain what that is at all, but it's a really... Yeah, can I, can go I, yeah, can go I do a real it. quick spiel? Yeah, okay, so um, so bloodknife.com, bloodknife bl- 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 uh, is a, uh, it's, it's an online magazine about sci-fi, horror, fantasy, and capitalism. Um, and we are running uh, monthly releases of uh, currently between four and six, and hopefully more uh, more soon, uh, original think pieces each month that analyze um, books, movies, TV shows uh, of you know different g- genre media with an explicitly kind of anti-capitalist, anti-fascist, anti-racist, pro-LGBTQ um, perspective. Uh, we we put out our first issue um, in uh, the end of July. Uh, our second issue is is coming out the end of August. Um, you know, some of the stuff that we've we've done so far has been uh, you know an, an analysis of uh, the way that fascism is portrayed in in the movie Children of Men. Um, we, there was uh, you know a nice think piece uh, that we ran last month about um, kind of p- potentially anti-imperialist themes in Game of Thrones. Uh, there was a nice trend piece about about the way that horror in the past has shifted based upon pandemics and and recessions. Um, and in the issue that we're about to release, uh, we've, we've got a, a couple of really cool things. The one, the, one of which I am I am especially excited for, which is a write up uh, of the the book and new TV series Lovecraft Country uh, from Leslie Lee the Third from Star Wars, oh, nice. which which I I haven't gotten the draft yet, um, but but I am I am extremely excited uh, to 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 get it because I I know it's going to be. Uh, th- thoughtful and good um and uh can, I'll, I'll i'll just kind of spring this but um uh our our, our own trev here is also oh. writing a piece oh. um to, to run in i believe that's going to be in the issue that comes out at the end of october uh about uh, total recall um and it's it's, it's a cool pitch and i'm extremely excited uh to 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 get a look at that and then and then to, to to publish it um so we have a patreon that gives you early access to some of the content um it's at patreon.com slash blood knife or you can check out uh the site at bloodknife.com uh yeah it's really great friend of the pod carlo jaeger rodriguez 
who I love his writing. He's just like also a friend of mine. He wrote for the first issue, and it was really great. That's right. Yes, uh, the Children of Men piece is, is his. Yes. And that, that 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 was actually the first piece that we got, and that that's when I was like, okay, good. There's actually like like you know people people writing uh, cool cool stuff yeah. for this. That I'll, I'll add I'll also um, you know a, a big part of the log line for creating this was to pay writers uh, fairly. Um, we we you know we we launched paying uh, forty dollars per eight hundred words, and we've got that got up to sixty dollars per eight hundred words, which is which is slightly more uh, than what Jacobin pays for for online um, <laughs> articles. And I I don't say that as a dig. Um, that that was just the the line that I picked for like okay, this is th- this is the bare minimum that I, I feel like is acceptable to to be paying you know f- for an online piece. Um, and so I'm, I'm pleased that we, we've been able to, to get it up over that based on uh, Patreon subscribers. And um, hopefully, you know, ho- hopefully we'll be able to continue raising that and to continue um, paying mo- more writers to, uh, to publish pieces. So if you are a writer or you're inclined to be and you have some thoughts on, on uh, contemporary or, you know, older sci-fi, horror, fantasy and their overlap with politics, uh, by all means, pitch us, please. Um, you know, we're 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 looking to uh, to to keep publishing stuff, and we're burning through it as fast as the pitches come in. So, cool. It's it's really great, and it's also just a really uh, nicely designed and curated website that makes a very engaging uh, browsing and scrolling experience. It's something you don't see in websites anymore. It's very pleasant to to look at and and, and just experience. It's probably the first good website. To, to come out in well in well over a decade, maybe it's ever. actually the only good website. Bloodknife.com is the first good website, so you should definitely <laughs> go check it out. Uh, thanks, Kurt. I'm like really excited about it and seeing it grow. So that's awesome that it's already doing well. And thanks for coming back on the pod. Real quick, the one thing I want to shout out is the the like Spotify playlist that you put up there for very cool it's so sick that rocks because i like to do that when i read stuff anyway i'm just usually too lazy uh and it's right there (laughs) and you can just do it it's so great thank you yeah we're definitely going to keep doing that and and yeah you know thanks for giving the opportunity to come on and 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 promote it and thanks so much also for having me back on i you know i i I have missed uh my 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 doses of of uh kevin so so (laughs) i you know i'm glad that they're coming again all right bye everybody bye Bye. Tender is the night, lying by your side. Tender is the touch of someone that you love too much. Tender is the day the demons go away.